Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I just finished speaking with Anna Harrison about her new book, The City of Blue and White, Chinese Porcelain in the Early Modern World. This came out in 2020 with the Cambridge University Press. And I've been struggling a little to figure out how to describe this book because, yes, it is about Chinese ceramics produced in the imperial kilns of Jingdezhen. On one level, it is a chronological history of this place, this space, beginning in the northern Song and stretching to the late 17th century. But while this is a history of the local, it is also a book that pays close attention to the global. This book really connects the two, showing how the ceramics produced in the city of blue and white moved and traveled and fit into the ideas of the early modern global world, and in turn, how that movement, those ideas, led back to the growth of the city of blue and white. In exploring this interaction between local and global, this book really stands as a challenge on two fronts and to two different kinds of scholars. It is a challenge to global history and global historians, challenging them to include local language sources, to include sources in Chinese, in this case, uh, and challenging them to pay attention to what is going on on the ground. And it is also, in equal measure, a challenge to those who do Chinese studies. To them, it is a challenge to look beyond the borders of what we call China, to think globally, and to think about what is going on globally that impacts the local. And these challenges are done in the most beautiful, clearly written, and engaging way. This book is filled with fascinating moments and fascinating objects. It pays close attention and devotes a lot of space to individual works of porcelain, shipwrecks, history of labor, dust, and my personal favorite, shards. So I hope you seek this book out and enjoy it. And I hope that you enjoy the conversation that follows, where we talk about the local the global, how intertwined those two things were in the past and how they are very much intertwined today, and of course, some fabulous works of ceramics. I'm here today with Anna Herritsen to talk about her new book, The City of Blue and White, Chinese Porcelain and the Early Modern World. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Anna, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. So could you kick us off, as is tradition on the channel, by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to the field? How did you come to work on Chinese history and Chinese art and porcelain in particular? So for me, um, the story of how I connect to China starts with um, the fact that I did languages in high school. I was pretty bad at everything else. So I skipped everything else and just stuck with languages. And then I had an opportunity to go to the U.S. for a year when I was uh, just still 17. Um, And I had the opportunity to learn Chinese, to add Chinese to my European languages. So um, I did Chinese as a language first without doing anything else. And that got me interested. And then I went to Leiden to study Chinese studies. So that involved all sorts of other aspects of it, um, as is you know usual for East Asian studies or Chinese studies programs. And then uh, when I started my PhD, I was actually still a little bit unsure whether I wanted to do history or literature and ended up doing history, which was a very good choice for me in the end. Um, and I've been teaching in a history department um, for nearly 20 years. So I've been a historian more than somebody who works on area studies or on Chinese studies. I teach at a university that doesn't even have um, a Chinese studies program. So I'm very much based in the kind of discipline. 
Um, but, um, you know, that the origin for me was in the language itself, learning modern Chinese and then adding uh, classical when I was an undergraduate in Leiden. Perfect. And I'm, I'm guessing here uh, that, you know, your sort of background and where you sit in terms of, you know, doing Chinese history in a, in a space where there isn't um, a Chinese studies or an Asian studies department probably, you know, fed a little bit into this book, because as we're going to talk about, this is, I feel, you know, this is a book rooted in um, Chinese history and area studies, but it very much speaks, I think, to, uh, you know, a non-specialist audience. Um, So I'm sure we're going to get to talk to that. Um, But moving into talking about the book itself, The City of Blue and White, um, this book takes as its subject matter, Blue and White Porcelain. Um, which was made in the kilns in and surrounding Jingdezhen. And we're going to get into what that place and space means and how we can understand that. But I think it makes sense at least to start with it as a place that you traveled to. So your acknowledgments mentioned that you first traveled there in 2005. Um, so I'm wondering if you, you could say a few words about that trip. And what, what I'm interested in here is how that trip fits into the development process of the book in general. So had you decided in 2005 to write a book about blue and white porcelain? And if you had, was this the book that you imagined in 2005 writing? It does sound like such a long time ago. I don't know whether I really appreciate having that kind of, you know, brought back to my mind, but I do open my acknowledgements with it. So absolutely. So 2005 was the first time I traveled to Jingdezhen. And actually it was a kind of detour uh, on a trip that was, um, it was a Jiangxi trip. So I, for my PhD, I worked on um, kind of intellectual and religious culture in Jiangxi. And I had already sort of from the start, from around 2000, started to travel to Jiangxi. So not just to work on the texts and the literary heritage of the place, but try to actually visit the, the physical spaces, to try and familiarize myself with the context within which those scholars and literati wrote, the way in which the heritage of that um, was preserved in a contemporary context. And actually, you know, if you start out with thinking about Song or Song Jiangxi, then if, if and I worked on a place called Luling in Xi'an, um, actually there is nothing left, pretty much nothing from the Song, you know. So actually when I first arrived there and I worked um, with local scholars um, at Jiangxi Shifandashia, they said, you know, what do you mean you're here to look at that stuff? That that just doesn't exist. Um, but there is, you know, leiching stuff if you want. So anyway, I was already in a kind of practice of visiting, you know, as soon as I could and, and was able to find funding for it um, around Jiangxi and specifically around Xi'an and to visit sites and spaces where scholars had been. And actually it was hugely important to me in the way I wrote uh, about uh, Ji'an Prefecture and Jiangxi as a whole. And so I was there really to look at Ji'an, and I was with a colleague, um, a, a, actually a, a fellow student of mine who is, um, was interested more or less in Jiangxi, not so specifically in any of this. So the opportunity arose to make a detour to, to Jingdezhen, and we had a great time, and we just walked around, we visited the museums, we saw all the kiln sites, and I had some interest in it already. I mean, it the ideas were forming, but my my Jian uh, book wasn't finished yet. So I certainly had not uh, imagined that it would be a book like this, that it would be a book, um, you know, kind of bordering or, or crossing over into art history. Um, and I certainly had not imagined that it would take me this long. Although, you know, since the first book also took me a very long time, I should have I should have really thought about that, that it probably would take me a while. Um, but what I did think right from the start, when it, the idea started to form, that I did want to have a project on Jingdezhen, that I wanted to work on this as a place, um, similar ideas about local culture, which were fundamental to me in my the writing of my first book, um, were that this would be a book about Jingdezhen as a place, that it would have a kind of local context, that it would have a kind of foundation in the actual heritage today, that it would have a connection to what that place meant to the people who were there, this kind of sense of the local and belonging. So actually all very similar ideas, just a completely different type of Jiangxi place. And so that contrast between the kind of place 
that Jian was full of scholars, full of learned academies, full of the kind of trappings of literati life. This was a place that was full of workers, of labor, of dust, of, you know, the, the kind of uh, crafting of objects, which was for me a very attractive contrast. And the other thing that I kind of had a sense of right from the start that and this tied it ties in with what you were just saying, Sarah, that, um, you know, it was in a place where when I was teaching, I started at, at the University of Warwick in 2001. Um, when I would talk about Ji'an and about the, the kind of cultures of Confucianism and the local temples in, in Jianfu, people would look at me, you know, with a sort of mixture of pity and horror. Like, what is that? Like, no one knows that place. Why would you write about it? And so... The idea of finding a place that also had a local, as Jing Dezhen clearly has, but one that actually does also connect to people that I was working with in my history department, where I could say, well, you know those pieces of porcelain that you have, that you maybe see in a museum, that maybe fill you know, the grand homes around the, the countryside in the UK, you know, they came from a place called Jing Dezhen. And that is a local place in a place called Jiangxi. So this connects, you know, and it really mattered to me that I could have these kind of conversations. Um, and, and so in that sort of initial idea of wanting it to be a local place with local meaning that had local sources attached to it, but being able to frame it more broadly as something that had a global connection, you know, that actually stayed very present throughout the book and is very central to the way the book emerged in the end, you know, eventually in 2020. Very, very cool. It's, it's nice to, I mean, it comes through so clearly in the book itself. So it's very cool to hear that it, you know, was there from the very beginning. Uh, we're going, of course, to talk a lot about the local and the global, but because we're already talking about Jing Dejan as a place, I think it makes sense to sort of follow that a little bit. Um, because in the book itself, you talk about, you know, space being really important and you talk about it being this place, you know, that did exist on different levels. Um, you unpack this really beautifully. You show readers that it was thought of and can be thought of as a physical space, an administrative space, a manufacturing space, an imperial space and a workshop. And as you point out in the book, these visions of what Jing Dejun is are crucially important because they shape, you know, the representations of space in this place. Um, so for listeners who perhaps haven't read the book yet, could you say a little bit about this and give us a sense of these different visions of what Jing Dejun meant to people at these different levels? Sure, yeah. So space um, was a really important concept, <clears throat> excuse me, for, for, for my writing. And space, I think, is one of those things that we... Um, you know, beyond academia, take completely for granted. It is just a sort of, you know, thing that's out there that we don't question. Uh, the 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 historiography and the methodology around space as a concept to work with, I think, is incredibly fruitful within academia. And so, I it, it mattered hugely to me to think about what exactly is a local space. So for Jing Dezhen, in many ways, that just meant the town itself. So the town itself has that kind of concrete existence that it has now, that it had in the past, and that meant something to people. It could be written about in a very graphic, material way, in a kind of way of uh, locating things. Archaeologists write about where these things are located. You know, within all of the different methodologies that intersect with something like porcelain, and I mean, you know, archaeology and chemistry and um, uh, anthropology and art history and history and economic history, all these different ways of looking at porcelain, the space has a very different resonance for, these, for each of these approaches. So I tried to look at it from these kind of broad, um, kind of ever, uh, ever tighter and ever closer circles. And if you start by looking at how it appears on the map, it is just that kind of dot. And it is a dot that maybe connects to other places, but it actually um, remains a kind of meaningless space. You have to get into a kind of closer way of looking at it. And then very quickly, it's clear that people uh, write about a space to give it an identity. And I think this is where this methodology really comes into its own. So the government, the imperial government, the documentation from the state 
creates a kind of sense of what Jingdezhen is. And for them, in that language, Jingdezhen is the imperial kiln site. It's the place where the imperial porcelains are produced. It's the place where officials are sent to oversee this, to be in charge of it, to create it as a kind of satellite of imperial production. So much of the imperial production happens right within the imperial court, right there under the wakeful eye of the imperial you know, system. But some of it had to be elsewhere, and, and Jingdezhen had to be where it is because the, that's where the resources are. So it's an imperial site. It's, it's kind of owned and controlled by the imperial state. But it has this kind of pushback because it has to be where it is because that's where the clay is. That's where the fern is. That's where the resources can be gathered together. That's where, therefore, the skilled people congregate. So I think that that distinction between the imperial writings created as a particular space is challenged a bit when you look locally, because actually when you look at how the local resources write about it, the local texts, they write about these tensions between what happens locally and what happens beyond that boundary. And so I think you can look at it from an environmental um, perspective. You know, you can sort of imagine what the space was like as it was ravaged by the site, by the use, this kind of voracious use of firewood from the voracious use of the resources that were, you know, being put to good use all the time, but therefore had an impact. And you can see those, the impact of that, of course, when you travel there, you know, there are the sort of the scars and the gaps in the environment that are caused by many centuries of porcelain production. So I really wanted to try and show how spaces in that chapter where I kind of tease that apart, that spaces are not stable entities. Spaces mean very different things. And there's a kind of agency of that space, which I really enjoyed kind of putting next to each other. Absolutely. And it's it's probably one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, and you sort of follow that with the discussion about um, how the, the state tried to assert its control over Jingdezhen and over, you know, raw materials and recipes for different colors and tools and resources and ownership over um, the bodies of the workers. Um, you have a really fascinating look at, you know, how some of these concerns and anxieties for control played out in the workroom with really elaborate uh, regulations about color and when workers could use certain colors and what you know who what workers were allowed to see different recipes. Um, this is a very very um, fascinating part of the book um, that I just wanted to highlight because I enjoyed it <laughs> a great deal. Uh, but you mentioned there in your um, when you're talking about um, porcelain about different methodologies that can be used um, to sort of study it and interrogate it. And as you say in the book, you know, a number of different methodologies have been used. Um, as you say, art historians have studied the porcelain that came out of Jingdezhen. Historians have focused on the wares as traded commodities. Archaeologists study porcelain finds, um, both in the ground and underwater. Um, museum curators work on individual pieces. And area specialists study the area within the context of the history of the Chinese Empire and so on. And your book is certainly drawing on all of this previous scholarship. Um, you know, on one level, it is charting the history of, of Jing Dezhen, moving chronologically from the Northern Song to the late 17th century. But your book is very different in that it takes an explicitly uh, interdisciplinary approach to, to the topic, one that combines disciplines, and in particular, as you sort of touched on already, one that combines a concern with the global, with the local. Um, and this, I guess I've already said, comes across so clearly and so beautifully throughout um, as you're, you're, you know, you're asking how and why Jingdezhen became the leading site of ceramics production in the world. And you're showing um, how China's blue and white porcelain reached people almost everywhere in the early modern world, but you're making it clear that it was only because of decisions and choices made at the local level that this was, you know, able to be so. Um, so instead of separating out the local and the global, you're really making the case that it is the interaction between them that explains Jing Dezhen's growth. Um, and this is a fascinating approach and one, as I've already said, that sets the book apart. So could you unpack this for listeners? 
Could you just say a little bit about where this book sits in terms of scholarship, historiography on Jing Dijun, and why it was important for you to approach the topic in the interdisciplinary way that you have? Um, that, that's an, yeah, it's an interesting question because um, whether uh, it works, you know, I'm glad to hear that you think it works. Um, it, I think it remains to be seen a little bit. I'm interested uh, to find out what different people who work in different areas will find of it. So I try to bring them all together because my center of attention was really the place. So Jing Dajun, trying to understand it as a place. And therefore, I felt I needed all of those different disciplines. So I needed that sense of, you know, how did the resources get managed? I needed an understanding of labor history uh, to find out who was working there, who was actually doing the graft of producing this porcelain, who were the skilled people who were there, how were they actually taxed, how was this kind of integrated in the local administration you know, those things were all important to me, and they're completely unimportant to an art historian. So for art historians, porcelain is, um, you know, it's ubiquitous in many ways. So that kind of, you know, it's not an, a unique piece of art. It's not produced by an individual creative genius about whom we know, you know, everything there is to know in the way we know about the kind of, you know, the Renaissance artist. Um, so it becomes more kind of, you know, a, a kind of on a par with a category of art that's produced anonymously in a workshop context. Um, and then what tends to happen, if you look at it from that through that lens, is, you know, people start to organize it, separating out different time periods or different design features or different materials or grouping different things. And so for me, as, an, uh, as a historian with an interest in a local space, that's unsatisfactory. But equally, you know, I, I am quite prepared to hear um, all kinds of critique from art historians who feel that I haven't spent enough time talking about design features or not, a, not done enough justice to the kind of um, the actual um, artistic value of these individual pieces. So I felt really that if, if we're trying to understand... Um, porcelain not just as a fine piece that you look at in a in a museum context where you can't actually touch it but more as a kind of um you know object that has been created in very difficult circumstances often through hard labor very dusty environment with resources that were hard won from the natural environment in the tension between demands from the imperial state and the local market you know then actually we need all of those different aspects of it and of course i also need information that is um, held under the ground so i needed the archaeological information i needed the records from outside um, but i think as anyone uh, probably would would agree to as soon as you do something that draws on a number of different disciplines then you're probably also falling a little bit short for those people who are just interested in that one discipline so i'm hoping that the kind of global local element is at least a kind of constant i'm glad you say that that comes through clearly so that it's clear that that was actually my main purpose i'm not trying to intervene necessarily into art historical narratives even though i think i am making a point about the ways in which we see these different groups of material so the the language that that particularly porcelain specialists i mean not necessarily art historians but the people who make the study of porcelain their kind of life mission is often to organize the, this into different wares. So different kilns produce different types and they're seen as completely separate. And I think one of the things that this approach that I try to apply shows is that actually we have to see it in that regional context. We have to see how what was produced at the northern kilns connected up to what was being produced at the southern kilns and that some of the developments that we think of as very particular to one site actually often benefited from interactions with other sites. So that methodology of looking beyond boundaries, which is really important to me, um, is part both of local and of global. And it sort of, it sort of justifies for me, I hope, um, why I needed to draw all those other methodologies um, that were, you know, added something to this approach of understanding, you know, what was happening in Jingdejun. Mm -hmm. And in terms of... Um 
you said there, you know, it remains to be seen if the the global local focus will sort of hold up, if people will sort of see that. Um, it strikes me that this is a particularly good moment, perhaps, um, in 2020 to be talking about the interaction between global and local. Um, I saw something that you posted on Twitter, actually, about how uh, we are living through a global moment, but feeling it very locally, and that this was sort of resonating with you with in terms with uh, what you were writing about in the book. So perhaps that was why it res- it worked so particularly well for me. I feel that we are living through a moment where the how closely intertwined the global and the local really are is perhaps being brought to the fore more than I, I, uh, exactly. might otherwise be so. No, I, I, exactly. I completely agree. I think, you know, it's a, it's a, a kind of um, juxtaposition or, a, you know, seen as a, a kind of two sides of the same coin. That, that's nothing new. People have been talking about those two terms together or use that term globalization as a kind of oh, a sort of way of combining the two. And it remains very abstract. You know, it remains something that just it seems almost a kind of afterthought or if somebody is doing something local, they say, oh, well, actually, it's also global or somebody who's interested in the global says, okay, you know, but there's also this local side to it. And so I, I do really feel that this is a moment in which we have truly experienced that and we've really been confronted with the fact that however global this pandemic is, um, it, it really isn't meaningful until we see it through that lens of our own experience where we see how it pans out in our our local space. And that local space can be just our domestic environment or our family life or, you know, whatever space we have access to beyond um, the house. And I think having that so concrete, so clear to us helps really with justifying why that was the approach I used here, that it's all well and good to say ceramics are being traded all over the world and to think, you know, these are uh, global networks that spread into almost every part of the world as early as, you know, certainly in the 17th century. There's very few places that don't have some kind of exposure to Chinese blue and white that came from Jingajun. But really, it doesn't make any sense to talk about that without also acknowledging what that looked like within Jingdezhen and how that felt to the people who were working there and you know what those pieces meant to any individual that had access to it and that somebody in Indonesia that has access to a piece of blue and white has a very different story to tell about that piece of ceramics than somebody who has it in a collection you know in their house or has a broken shard you know those stories um you know, they need to be seen in conjunction with each other. And I think, uh, you, you know, that's absolutely right. This is the moment to remind us of that. So that works well. The the timing is not great for many things, uh, but in terms of the interaction of the global and the local. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. Perhaps, yes. <laughs> So continuing, um, you mentioned you mentioned shards in in your um, your last comment. There, you mentioned um, you know what pieces of porcelain meant to individual owners. I'm really hoping we get to talk about both of those things uh, before. But before we sort of move away from thinking of the global, um, wanted to hear your thoughts on global history. Um, and I am of course thinking with this about the ending of your book, um, where you draw out. What you, you, what you you have a section titled Lessons for Writing Global History um, that sort of come out of your story about blue and white porcelain. Um, so I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about this and in terms of where you're hoping with this book to sort of um, move or influence a little bit the conversation about global history. So what lessons are you hoping that global historians and perhaps non-China global historians, because as I've already sort of mentioned, I really do think this book is accessible um, for a wide audience. Um, it's very, very clearly written. It's very, um, I don't work on porcelain personally, but for me, for my uh, reading eyes, it worked perfectly well. Um, so what are you hoping in terms of lessons that global historians sort of take from this book, from this approach? I, that's a, Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting question and one that I think my views also kind of you know, continue to change on. So initially, um, when global history first emerged, and that's probably, you know, around, probably not so long after 2001, when um, with the publication of Ken Pomerantz, um, 
uh, his book, um, I think I think lots of people started to think more about global history, and that's quite a different approach to global history from the much longer history of world of the world. So, world history as a field existed for a very long time, has and continues to thrive, of course. And I think the distinctions are maybe not always meaningful and not always made effectively, but they are sort of in the origin story of that as a field where world history seems to come out of a field of world civilizations, maybe of a teaching program that tries to bring other parts of the world's world into the picture and maybe even the teaching experience of uh, scholars of China who are teaching students who actually have no interest in China but can see that it's part of the great civilizations. You know, that, is, that has a very um, illustrious and important part in academia all over the world. But I think global history as it emerged initially in the UK but also in California and various other places, um, it had a much more um, economic-based uh, origin. It had really a story about how did the world start to become so divided? How did the kind of great divisions between rich and poor, but also between West and East, how did they emerge? How did they, and at what point did they become kind of inevitable? So I think there are different kinds of questions to ask and different resources to use for that. So in the kind of way in which global history is a meaningful field to me um, within uh, the University of Warwick, where I teach and where we have a global history center um, with many historians who see themselves as global historians. It's not actually so much about the specifics of the place or the detail of any particular um, locality or area. It's really a methodology, and it's a methodology that is about looking beyond the borders. It's opening up those kind of closed off areas, it's looking how things interact and intersect and are entangled and are messy. Um, and I think for me, that is a much more meaningful way than thinking of global history as the study of the entire globe, of having to capture all of the world civilizations or having to tell the story of everywhere and anywhere. Um, you know, that that is in itself, of course, an almost impossible to achieve aim. But the methodology of saying, actually, we we should not think of things that are bounded. We should not think of things as closed off. That, I think, is very meaningful. And for me, um, having come out of strong China programs with lots of people teaching and researching just China, um, that was my um, modus operandi. That's what I was familiar with. So people work on China and they only talk to other people who also work on China with whom they have their own sort of language of talking about China. Um, and they, so it's meaningful to talk about Ji Anfu or about Confucianism or whatever. You know, that's my kind of old world from which I emerged. Um, I think that is not a very productive way of thinking about China, I now think. So I think this book tries to say to people, you know, those of you who are in in China studies or in a Sinocentric approach or in a mode of talking only to other people who do China, we need to get out of that. We need to think about the multiple ways in which China crossed borders, challenged boundaries, communicated across that and had agency within that. It wasn't just a victim of foreigners coming in and imposing views on China or a con contradiction between what is China and what is non-China or what is Han and non-Han. You know, I think these are much more complicated interactions. And so for me, uh, porcelain was really just a way of showing that. So that, on the one hand, I see as the challenge to global to to China studies, but it's at the same time a challenge to global history because global history tends then to say, okay, well, look at these big boundaries. Let's look at the big macro structures. Let's look at these big regions, um, and completely loses sight of the actual specifics of individual places and loses sight often of the languages and the sources and the primary materials. And so I tried to address that at the same time by saying, no, actually, we really need to be able to read. If we're writing about porcelain and if we're trying to understand how it was made, we need to read the Chinese materials. We need to look at how this was actually produced within its local context. So I'm trying to 
do both. I'm trying to challenge the China people to look beyond the borders, and I'm ch- trying to challenge the global historians to say, actually, you can't really do that without languages, without bringing in the local sources, and by thinking about how those two are inextricably connected, how they always are part of, you know, as a, a network of a connection, of a messy connection often, but a connection nonetheless. When you were saying messy connection there, um, it really reminded me of, I think you, you definitely mentioned this in the book, um, when you talk about um, circulation and the problems of circulation, you talk about, you know, when people talk about objects circulating, they often sort of um, imply or infer without meaning it that this is going to be, you know, things are going to travel in regular patterns and nice circles. But what you're really talking about is sort of the messiness, the network, the web, um, which is much messier than the word circulation itself um, indicates. Um, yeah, mentioned- I think, yeah, sorry. No, I didn't no, 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 go on, go on. Well, I think somewhere I use the um, the metaphor of a river sort of showing. Water, that, yeah. yeah. So water flows in these very kind of unpredictable ways. It goes into all these little crevices. It flows out in unexpected places. And that's a much more meaningful way of thinking about it. Unfortunately, of course, that ends up still being linguistically quite messy. So <laughs> this is where we're always trapped. You know, we try to complicate things and we're so pleased that we're making things more difficult. And we think, you know, we've gained much greater insight by complicating things. And then we realize actually, but we still need the language. We still need some kind of shorthand that says, you know, in this sentence, when I use the word circulation, which I do, of course, use, it's very difficult to, to um, avoid it. I mean all these other complicated, messy interactions, and it becomes, you know, it, very difficult to handle. So you fall back on the terminology that you just hope people will remember. But that doesn't mean it just goes from A to B. It meant something in A, and then it means something in B, and there's nothing in between. You know, it's 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 just hard to match clarity and simplicity of writing with this urge we all have to make things more complicated and to to disabuse people of the idea that these are just simple trade connections. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned there, you know, we need um, languages. You were talking about with the study of global history, you need the linguistic competence. And something that you mentioned when you're talking about global history is that we also need human actors. Um, as someone who works on... Uh, books and, you know, books are when they move globally are often talked about, you know, circulating independent of people. Um, This was something that I particularly uh, appreciated you drawing attention to. Um, You talked about uh, in your book of, you know, if uh, global histories are written without people, um, we will remain hampered in our understanding of them. Um, I just wanted to flag that because that was something that I particularly appreciated. Yeah. Yeah, in your discussion yeah. about global history. No, it's, and, and it's a very interesting aspect of, you know, the kind of human actors when you're talking about porcelain. So one of the things that people who don't like porcelain often say is they think it's a very hard and cold and remote thing and they can't really get any kind of human connection with it. Um, and I can, I, I mean, that's absolutely true, you know, and it's hard when you're writing about something like porcelain to bring in the human stories. You know, sometimes I get questions, um, particularly if people are interested in making, you know, a documentary about China and it should feature some porcelain. And then they say, can you give us a great potter? You know, can you give us an individual? Can you give us a person? We need to know, is there somebody who resisted the hard conditions under which they had to work and it's very difficult because the resources the texts we have are so uh, remote from individual artistry for for Jingdezhen so I haven't been able to find one individual potter whose story I could tell there is we have some names of course we have some so there's some poems that people have worked on. They date from a slightly later period. So we have some sense of the human actors, but it, it's you know it's it's precisely that tension between the things and the people and the individuals and the kind of anonymous larger groups of workers who were involved um, that you know in some ways you know they're a fruitful tension and in some ways um, that continues to haunt me that I wasn't able to tell the individual stories of potters and see it really through their eyes and from their perspective. You know, in the end, it remains a story of 
um, largely hard pieces of porcelain. <laughs> hard pieces of porcelain that are, you know, sometimes talked about meaningfully in textual sources um, and sometimes perhaps not. Um, you have a really, as we've already touched on, this is, you know, this is a book that combines different kinds of sources Um drawing from different fields. You combine physical sources, um, specific works of porcelain um, with sort of descriptions of archaeological work. And of course, as you've mentioned, textual material. Um, and, of, you know, like <laughs> um, in not entirely dissimilar ways to documentaries who want you to talk about uh, specific potters, I would love to hear about specific uh, pieces of porcelain but before we get there, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about textual sources, um, in particular, some of the challenges of working with them in, you know, trying to tell the story of Jing Dajun in this book. And I am, of course, thinking about your discussion in the early part of the book, um, when you're discussing Jing Dajun's history of, you know, beginning, um, starting out as a place where porcelain comes from, um, because you talk quite a bit about where textual sources um, let the story down or where there are silences in that story. So I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about this and sort of what this particular moment reveals to us about the problem of over-relying perhaps on textual materials. Yeah, so the texts for Jing De Jun are, are quite varied and mixed and they are, um, you know, they're a combination of things that are either uh, individual collectors who talk about um, their pieces of porcelain, and it's very difficult then to match that to an actual piece of porcelain. You know, we don't have many early records of individual collectors who say, this is my piece of porcelain, and then find that particular piece of porcelain they would have had in their hand. Um, you know, that, those are the kind of dream sources that, that were very difficult to find. Um, so there are... There are just random records. So for in many of the early chapters, I was just trying to piece together bits and pieces that I could find. Um, and it really wasn't until I got to the kind of 16th century that I really had concrete source, textual sources that were consistent enough that I could cover the whole, uh, a much broader range, a wide um, period. So I, I worked with uh, a gazetteer, 16th century, that came out in several editions right till the end of the 16th century. And that's, it, it's an administrative document. So it's telling us kind of how people should manage the kilns, how things should be produced, how uh, individual workers should be um, rewarded for their work or how they should be selected in what they could do. So it doesn't actually tell us very much about how things really happened. But what it does do, as often these kind of prescriptive sources do, is give us some indication of where the problems were, where were the tensions in these circumstances. So that is that was, I found, quite productive. So it was possible to read the documentation about how you should manage things like theft of resources as an indication of clearly that was something that was happening, right? They wouldn't be writing extensively about how precious cobalt was and how difficult it was to keep control over cobalt. This is a very expensive resource that had to be processed very carefully. It was sometimes uh, procured locally, sometimes from further afield within the Chinese empire, sometimes even from beyond that, from uh, Central Asia and from the Middle East. Um, so this was a precious resource, and clearly it caused tension. So people had, you referred to that already, elaborate control mechanisms mm -hmm. to make sure that people didn't steal it, that they couldn't put it in their pockets, that they couldn't um, uh, dilute it and swap out some of the precious resource reserved for the imperial production and swap cheaper commodities or cheaper resource into that for local private production so that gave me that sense in those two chapters where I deal with the tensions around production, around natural resources and human resources, um, of where uh, there was this pushback, where actually the local and the private kilns where they were producing for the market, where they were not producing for the imperial selection, worked in a kind of symbiotic relationship. So the two of them are often thought of as separate production lines and ceramic specialists even divide themselves into those who work on the imperial production and imperial porcelain. And it's certainly visible in the market too. If it's imperial porcelain, it's worth 
far, far more in the contemporary market than pieces that are popular, even though, you know, there's a bit of uh, pushback between the two. But it's clear from reading this administrative document that deals with these endless problems that emerge in that production, that the two were completely reliant on each other. The imperial production wasn't possible without the people who had the skills who were working in the private kilns. The production in the imperial kilns wasn't sufficient to provide the imperial demand with all of it what it wanted. So the two actually coexisted. And in fact, I mean, I tried to read as much as I could between the lines, between the kind of size of frustration from these administrators, um, that actually they were quite able to recognize that they needed a bit of flow between the two. And that, that came at a price, so that meant that sometimes they lost skilled workers or they lost some precious resource, but they needed those private kilns to coexist with the imperial kilns so that the whole system remained more or less in balance. So I tried to sort of, out of that textual document, tease out some of that kind of on-the-ground production element that otherwise I would have loved to gain from individual, you know, I would have loved to find a potter that said, yes, I scored some great cobalt today. <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, that that doesn't, as far as I know, that doesn't exist. But we do... Um, you know, I, I try to create a picture, and in some ways, you know, this maybe ties in in talking about individual pieces. I was really interested in that sort of grimy, dusty, labor-intensive, messy environment within which these fine pieces were produced. I was much more interested, in many ways, in that kind of you know, that whole working environment, the technology, the human skill that was at work there, but also the labor conditions under which those objects were produced, rather than looking just at the fine pieces. And I think we look at them differently once we see that environment, once we see the kind of uh, toggles over skill that were worked out in the background. I think it, it, it allows us to understand those pieces in a completely different way well that, that was what I was hoping anyway mm -hmm. I, I think very much so absolutely and as you said you know it is perhaps I can imagine the disappointment of not finding that record from a potter saying yes I scored some great cobalt but <laughs> you know as you as you talk about there were so many regulations surrounding cobalt that it's hard to imagine that a potter didn't say Yes, I scored some great cobalt <laughs> uh, because you know regulations are usually put in for a reason exactly. uh, because yeah. enough potters scored some great cobalt. Yeah, yeah, no, and we see we see fine pieces that were produced well away from the imperial court that had clearly somehow accessed some very good quality cobalt. Those are the you know, they're superb pieces and you can recognize it from the color of the blue. I mean, other people are much more expert at, at it than I am. But the blue, the kind of intensity of the blue is a giveaway of the quality of the cobalt. So you can see that kind of uh, the interaction between the two in the pieces themselves. Mm -hmm. So sticking with cobalt and sort of reading between the lines, um, I wanted to ask you about your discussion about how cobalt gets to be placed on the white porcelain, um, because you have a really interesting discussion. And this brings us back to, you know, the combination of the local and the global. Um, you have a really int interesting discussion about the emergence of blue and white um, porcelain. And your sort of your argument here is largely that, you know, while you're, you're, you're gesturing towards the fact that the cobalt was sourced from Central Asia. It's very global. Um, you argue that it was the circulation of local technologies from the northern provinces in China, the local, that really made it possible for blue and white porcelain um, to come about. And this is, you know, you've already talked about reading between the lines. This part of your book in particular is a real, um, I think at least, a very interesting and really great masterclass on clear and measured writing because you're so clear about telling the reader what your sources allow you to say and where there are gaps. Um, and this, I think, matters not just for the history of Chinese porcelain, but going beyond that, you know, your use of the local and the global combination offers, I think, a new an interesting way of framing and thinking about stories of technology transfer and commodity circulation. Um, so could you say a little bit about this argument and what you're sort of doing with it in the book? Sure, yeah. So, so one way of talking about that is to go back to 
um, I mentioned before um, that I used to work on Gian and that I wrote my PhD on that and my first book came out. Um, and I was working on Gian, which is this place of scholarship and of learning. It's in Jiangxi province. It's in a different part of the province from where Jingdezhen is located. And it's a, for people who work on Song intellectual history, it's a familiar place. Now, that's a small community. I do recognize that. But there are many people who write about this place. Um, but what they never write about, or very rarely, is that this also was a place that produced ceramics. So Ji Anfu also had a kiln, as so many other places did, and it did produce very fine ceramics. Um, they are not necessarily porcelains. The quality of the clay is much less than what you have in Jingdezhen. It doesn't fire at such a high temperature. So technically speaking, it's not porcelain. It's what they call a popular kiln. So it didn't get ranked among the big imperial kilns. But it was produced right there in the same spaces where many of these scholars and intellectuals and Buddhists and um, were having their gatherings and meetings and talking about intellectual matters. And those things basically coexist and it's it it showed me how blinded you can be by your source material so we have a mass of written materials about Qian, and none of them mention the ceramics that were produced there for that you have to really look at something quite different so what i wanted to do is bring those two stories together and by looking at the ceramics that were produced in Ji'an, I could see that those narratives actually connected up because what they were producing in Ji'an looked just like what they were producing in the north, in Suzhou, in one of the counties um, that is nothing like Ji'an, but produces something that looks somewhat like, uh, like Ji'an ceramics. And so actually what I then tried to kind of document in those early chapters is that probably people ended up in Ji'an um, and became, which became such a rich and, and intellectual culture because they migrated from the north. They were pushed south with the fall of the Northern Song and they brought with them the ideas and the intellectual foment, but also some material culture. And so people started to copy from each other what they were doing. And it is that invention of drawing kind of line decorations that made flower patterns and things that look very different because they're using a different pigment they're not using cobalt but that actually lay the foundation for some of the decorations that we then see appear in Jingdezhen and Jian and Jingdezhen are not very far from each other but the political disruptions meant that people migrated from away from Jian particularly these potters and ended up in Jingdezhen and brought with them some of this technology, some of this way of putting decorations onto a white surface. So this story that usually gets told as a kind of huge innovation in Jingdezhen, as huge uh, novel something that came almost out of nowhere, suddenly they started to bring cobalt blue and suddenly they made all these kind of decorations. Actually, when you look at the pieces, when you look at the kind of material connections, you see there's a link between Suzhou in the north and Ji'an in the south, and there's a link between what they were making in Ji'an and what they were doing in Jingdezhen. And so that breaks down some of those boundaries, but it also shows that you can look at just the cobalt and say, that's what they brought from the Middle East, and suddenly they could make something completely different. That's part of the story, but it doesn't make any sense without having that local story, without having the connections that are really about Chinese history, about mobility and migration of people moving, intellectuals, but also the kind of attached working classes, the, the working people, the manufacturers, the skilled people. And those stories really need to be connected up and it needs to be a much more integrated story. So there are some pieces, some, I was illustrating, um, I was looking at my illustrations and trying to think about which pieces to talk about. And I think if you look at, you know, pieces that were made in Suzhou that are put next to pieces that were made in, in Jizhou, in Jian, in the south, you can see those similarities. And if you then put those illustrations next to the fine uh, pieces that were produced uh, in Jingdezhen, and most famously, of course, there are the David vases that are these perfect mm -hmm. pieces of blue and white, two huge vases with um, a really rich patterns of decorations and an inscription on a temple for a temple that allows us to date these pieces exactly you know they are 
heralded as these extraordinarily innovative pieces of of blue and white porcelain that are always used for dating when blue and white porcelain started to emerge. And they never have been put, as far as I know, in connection with pieces that were produced somewhere else. So it, that, for me, it worked as an example of saying, okay, that's both a global story and a local story, but it's also a story of interaction and connection where we need to just look at how those different sites connected to each other. They're not separate stories, a story of Jing Dezhen or just a story of imperial ceramics. It's actually a story that is connected. Absolutely. And as, as you've just pointed out there, it captures this particular part in the book captures so much of the book as a whole, the local mm. and the global, the breaking down of borders and boundaries, um, circulation, meaning the, the messy water flowing, people on the move, you know, it, it really touches on all of that. Um, but something you mentioned, you mentioned the David vases, um, which sort of, I can't believe we've managed to get this far into the conversation without talking about it, but the porcelain itself, uh, because this is, of course, a book filled with objects. And you have so many fascinating readings of really beautiful pieces of porcelain throughout the book. Um, and in particular, from my mind, at least in the middle of the book, um, when you're talking about blue and white porcelain in the 15th century, um, and you have a really, as with all, with with the book as a whole, you have a really interesting way of talking about these items um, because here at least you're looking at blue and white porcelain on the move and you really highlight that when these objects, these pieces of porcelain move into new cultural contexts, you point out that they, you know, they retain a certain sense of distinctiveness, their users and viewers know them to be foreign, to be global, but at the same time they become part of a new cultural context, they become local. And I think my personal favorite example of this is when you're talking about a late 14th century manuscript from Baghdad that has um, a pear-shaped vase with uh, blue glaze and white decorations on it. And you have this really cool reading of this vase, um, particularly as it's arranged in this manuscript with two other vases. But I won't you know, go into that um, too much more here. I'll leave that for readers to seek out on their own. Um, but as we're sort of coming to the end of our conversation here, is there any particular item, um, perhaps one like the manuscript that was sort of you know, made local in a new cultural context that you want to highlight uh, for readers about you know, the, something that touches on uh, any point in the book at all, really. So, yeah, that's uh, the, the piece that you highlight there, which I've matched with this piece from a French collection that isn't the exact same object, but close enough. It's I love that too. And I think it's wonderful um, to see how it fits in beautifully. You know, it's a Chinese piece of ceramics. It's mm -hmm. clear that it's Chinese. And yet there it is, kind of in all its glory in the middle of uh, this uh, context in Baghdad. And, and yeah, it, it, it's just, I find that quite moving that these pieces so early already had these kind of global lives. Um, but there's a piece that I've also talked about before and I love very much, and that's a Victorian Albert uh, collection piece and that's the it's known as the Peixoto Ewer um, and it's a piece that is to me really the kind of um, summing up again of these connections uh, so it's an early 16th century piece of ceramics so early 16th century is not a period that we think of China as very global right and yet uh, this is a piece of ceramics in a shape that is clearly copied from a metal example and probably from an Islamic ewer um, but it's a piece of porcelain and so it has these very refined thin uh, an arm and a kind of spout um, and then it has on it if you look closely um, a decoration that doesn't look anything like Chinese decorations because in fact it's a Portuguese decoration and it's likely although we haven't been able to confirm that completely that it is associated with a coat of arms with the Peixoto family and so here's this piece of porcelain that is made at a time that the Portuguese were trying to get in but weren't certainly reaching Jing Dezhen because they were captured and, and pushed right out again uh, during this time. And yet on this piece of porcelain made in Jing Dejan, under the glaze, so made in the same conditions as all the other pieces were made before it went into the kiln, it has this very clearly uh, Portuguese decoration on it. Now, there are other pieces like this too from that same time. So we know this is not a one-off. They were producing porcelains to the spec of 
the Portuguese who wanted that as a very high status item. But then, so not only do we have a kind of form that's copied from another material, it is fine blue and white, you know, it's a really radiant blue. Um, but then when you look closely, it's, it's decorated, the object itself, with silver mounts. And mounts mean it's, it's got a lid on it, and it's got a cover over the spout. Um, these were added later. And we can date those pieces, and they date from not very long after the piece of porcelain was made. So also somewhere in the 16th century, and they're made in Iran. So this is Persian silver, and this object traveled to Persia and was covered with these pieces of decoration then, before it then further traveled to Europe. And so it has, you know, not only this association with travel, this connectedness, um, it also has this kind of element of desiring to frame it, to claim it, to make it something that is meaningful in that new context, to say, this is how we indicate in the Persian context and similar things are done, this kind of framing of pieces um, in, in the European context too. But their attempts to own it, their attempts to claim it, to say, okay, well, so that's made elsewhere, but it's also a little bit of us. This is also somewhat um, associated with our sense of belonging. And it's that sense that I was talking about earlier between both belonging everywhere and belonging nowhere and claiming it and making it your own. And I think that pieces of porcelain can do that is really fascinating. Absolutely. And it also, uh, as you mentioned there, you know, it's something that clearly stopped along the way. So I think it really speaks to what you were talking about earlier about, you know, telling the story of the in-between A and B. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, when an object absolutely. is in motion, this one clearly, um, you can point to, definitely stopped. It made some trips and it acquired meaning, like mm -hmm. layers of meaning that are <clears throat> wrapped up within the object and the object becomes more meaningful because of that. Absolutely. And it's just one of many, many objects um, in the book that you sort of take the reader through and unpack all of those different layers, gesturing to ones um, as well that, you know, you might not have the sources, you might not have that uh, uh, textual source that says, you know, I stole the cobalt, uh, but, you know, <laughs> gesturing towards all these different layers of meaning. Um, yeah, yeah. This is, you know, really a book filled with objects, filled with the global, filled with the local, um, which, you know, I very, very much enjoyed um, That's That's reading and talking to you about it. But now that you're sort of finished with porcelain, perhaps, I'm not sure, uh, but now that you're finished with this book anyways, um, what are you working on next? What is inspiring you now? Ah, well, it's a good question. And uh, as I was saying earlier, books seem to take me a very long time. So I've been a little hesitant at embarking on the next big project. And I have, um, I'm, I'm planning, although I haven't, this hasn't taken very concrete form yet to try and bring together some of the other materials I've been working on um, that are similarly about connecting China to other parts of the world, but trying to look particularly at the ways in which uh, the senses were involved. So the touch, but also the taste and the smell and the bodily experience of dress and clothing. So I'm trying to say something about uh, the multiple other ways in which China traveled outside of its own boundaries and the ways in which people engaged with it, which were not just kind of intellectual pursuits, not just consuming it through the mind, but also through uh, the other the other senses. Um, so I've been working some, some, I've been doing some stuff on food, some stuff on medicine, a little bit on touch. I'm interested in pieces of broken porcelain, of shards, and the way in which when you <clears throat> when you touch a piece of porcelain, you actually experience it in a very different way from when you just see it or even when you just see it depicted in a book. So I'm trying to bring these all together. Uh, so porcelain will still be some part of it, but it certainly won't be the only thing I talk about. And of course, part of this book then will also be a part of whatever you work on next, um, as we've sort of, we mentioned um, briefly in our conversation, but this book also contains quite a few shards. Um, so I'm particularly glad to see that the shards might um, make, <laughs> make another appearance. Exactly. <laughs> make another appearance of what you yeah. work on next. Yeah. Uh, that sounds fascinating. Um, and that sounds like, you know, a, a very, very um, 
worthwhile, and I mean that in sort of the best, funnest sense, um, way to sort of, you know, frame your next project. Um, so I very much look forward to sort of hearing about and reading about perhaps of in the future, um, as I did with this book. Um, so Anna, again, thank you so much for uh, writing the book, for coming on to talk about it and for spending time with me um, talking about porcelain. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving it such a careful read and for your ways of representing it, which did it much more justice than I think it maybe deserves. But it was great. It was really, and I really enjoyed talking with you about it. So thank you for taking the time. And thank you for listening. Of course. Thanks. <laughs>